It's so good to see you. Uh, if we don't know one another, my name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the associate lead pastor here at Trinity. Uh, our lead pastor, Chris, is on a break for a bit, uh, resting and recovering, and I am thrilled to get to be here with all of you today. So thankful to um, have you guys with us, especially if you're new, if you're visiting Trinity, welcome. It's really good to have you uh, here as a guest. And if this is home for you, and maybe you haven't been here uh, in a while, people kind of cycling in and out throughout the pandemic, uh, welcome home. We're really glad to see your faces and have you here with us. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. An important story. I love this story from Mark's gospel, again, on sort of the nature of faith we talked about last week. I was reminded as I was sitting with this this week, in the light of everything that's going on in the world, one of the things I've always loved about this church, and maybe I love it about the church because I love it about Jesus uh, first, is I think we've always been a place and made a commitment um, to acknowledge when things were hard and to be honest about the hard things, to name something that's hard as hard. And while having that in one hand, to also be able to say, and yet still God is good. God is, in fact, good. And um, God is actually, he's as good, he's better than this thing is, is hard. And I've um, always found that to be true. That I could trust us to be honest about if the hard thing, then we can be honest about who God is. And what I love about this text is I think it invites us to do something similar, to acknowledge when things are hard, not as they should be. And also an invitation to trust that um, God is good in exactly that place, that maybe in the thing that is hard and not as it should be, that that's where we see the goodness of God in a particular way. So we're going to read, pray, and then see what the Lord has for us. Start reading verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, Lord, we are thankful, God, this morning for all that we've already declared and saying and offered to you for the worship of the church this morning, God, we give you thanks. We bless you, Lord, and thank you for the gift of your presence here with us. And we ask you now, Jesus, to do exactly as we've already said, Lord, will you help us even in our own hearts, God, to hold out the things that are hard and not as they should be, 
and see them for what they are. And yet, Lord, through the eyes of faith, to be able to see you, to come to know you, maybe even some of us for the first time in a new way. But it's for that gift in particular that we ask you this morning. Will you be here with us, Holy Spirit, in the same way you were with Peter? Whatever happened on the inside of him that allowed him to declare in faith, you are the Messiah, you are Christ, you are who you say you are. I pray, Lord, that that would be available to us this morning. We look to you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is one of those occasions um, in the Gospels that I think it's helpful to do a little bit of, uh, you know, like nerdy background work, to know um, this is the bit that the Bible doesn't tell us, that it just sort of assumes, and the Bible would be about 50 pounds if it, um, you know, told you all the things that we want to know all the time. Some of your Bibles do weigh 50 pounds. Uh, I get it. Um, This is one of those moments where it really helps, though, and it, it matters to have some of those, like, context clues. Caesarea Philippi was a very specific location that Jesus chose to take his disciples on a kind of uh, like field trip. He took them on a journey. It was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, which would have taken about two days, and uphill most of the way. So this is like learning field trip moment for Jesus and the disciples. He has a very specific location in mind with a very specific purpose. He's taking them to a place, and they had to work pretty hard to get there. That's usually how it goes, right? And so they, um, they go on this journey to Caesarea Philippi. No doubt many of them having been there before, they knew where they were going. Caesarea Philippi was a famously beautiful and famously pagan city. Um, it had a reputation. It was a city that was built at the feet of a giant limestone cliff face. Uh, so uh, sort of famous for its beauty. It literally kind of sparkled and dazzled against this limestone uh, cliff face. In the center of this uh, face of this cliff, there was this huge cave, a giant cave that housed within it this, um, this opening, this crevasse, that was um, the mouth, uh, natural spring, the mouth actually of the Jordan River, its origin. So springs were here, it was famous for this location, and it was like famously deep, this giant hole that was inside this cave. It was known throughout the ancient world. Um, The Greeks had built temples there. It was believed to be the gates to Hades, the gates to the underworld, because it was so deep. You know, you play the game or you drop a coin and you wait to see if you could hear it. It was sort of famously known for like, it doesn't matter what you stick down that hole or drop down there, you're never going to hear the bottom of it. There is no bottom. Hell is down there. Um, That was the word on the street. And so the Greeks had built temples to um, a couple of their gods, one of them being uh, Pan. Uh, Pan is uh, the goat god. Do you remember with a flute? You've seen him before. Uh, Probably most famously here in Atlanta, uh, Batdorf and Bronson. Y'all like dancing goats? You know, the little cute little dancing goat with a flute? Uh, That's Pan. That's where that comes from. I'm not saying they're a cult. I don't believe that Batdorf and I love their coffee. Do not leave here and go tell them that I said they were a cult. I don't believe that. But that's just like where it comes from, the little dancing goats. That's what they're known for. So the Greeks had put their temples there, and sort of famously, Herod had built a temple in front of that one, because this now city belonged uh, to Rome. And so he had dedicated this city uh, to Caesar Augustus, built the temple of Augustus in front of that one, um, one of three, actually, that he had dedicated uh, to Caesar in this, uh, in this region, uh, Herod wanting to make his love and affection of Rome known, his devotion to Caesar known. And the reason that I bother to tell you um, all of that Uh, is because it matters, uh, for one thing. This is where Jesus decides to take his disciples, to ask them this question. 
a place that to any Jew would have been an instant, visible, tangible reminder of Roman occupation, which to them was a very tangible, visible reminder that like what God had said had not yet happened, that what God had promised was not yet fulfilled. It was a kind of place that made their faith and what they believed feel small and kind of hopeless. Because God had promised that Jerusalem would be the footstool of heaven. God had promised that Israel was his chosen elected people and they were the ones through whom that God would spread his influence and his glory. But they're quite literally standing now at this giant cliff face looking at this temple that says on the front of it, who is Lord? Caesar is Lord, Pax Romana. Where does peace come from? Rome. Whose glory? Rome's. So it was a really intimidating place. The one, the kind of place where it's like if Jesus was going to be a failure, if he turned out to be a failure, this is what the world would look like. The kind of place that makes you think maybe he already has failed. Not only that, it also was like enemy territory. So it was like staked out by the enemy, capital E. Everywhere you looked, they had put their mark of their victory. They claimed it for themselves already. It wasn't in question. To whom does this city belong? Caesar. Everywhere you looked, there was an answer. Caesar, that's to whom this city belongs. It's his, beyond the pale of redemption. And that's not because, it, you know, to the Jews it felt God forsaken, no doubt. But that's not because it was like desolate or barren or, you know, not bearing fruit. It was actually the opposite. Caesarea Philippi was beautiful and prosperous. So it's the kind of place where you visit, you hear the words of Psalm 37. That's the psalm that says, with an agony in their gut, why do the wicked prosper? Why, Lord? And how long? Not everything that prospers, prospers to the glory of God. And Caesarea Philippi was a visible, tangible reminder of just how true that can be. So I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the novel um, Beloved by Toni Morrison. There's this sort of gut-wrenching scene where um, Setha, the main character, who's a former slave, she's walking the, hill, the hills of Sweet Home, the plantation where she was kept as a slave and, and tortured. And she's remarking out loud about how beautiful a place it is. She calls it sort of, she says it's shamelessly beautiful. And she says, the quote is, uh, it was never as terrible, it never seemed as terrible as it was. It's the kind of place that makes you wonder if hell will be pretty too. That's the way, at least in part, to a degree, that being in a place like Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi made a Jew feel. It's impossibly oppressed. And so other than what God had promised. How could both be true at the same time? That God is who he says he is, and yet this is happening and exists and is as it is. So I wonder if we aren't also meant to like call to mind in light of like how intentionally Jesus sought out this place our own versions of Caesarea Philippi, if we're not meant to put ourselves in exactly that same place, because Jesus takes them on this two-day trek, and they get, I imagine it, in front of this cliff, I mean, that's the whole city, probably at the footsteps of the temple, dedicated to Caesar, and Jesus looks at his disciples from that place and asks them this question. 
Who do people say that I am? With all that in the backdrop, looming large, who do people say that I am? So I wonder if there is an invitation for me to imagine my own Caesarea Philippi. What is the place, the situation or circumstance that makes me and my faith seem small? Futile, even. What is the thing in your life or set of circumstances or maybe a literal place that makes you feel like Jesus has failed? He cannot be who he says he is. I cannot hold both things at the same time. I think there is an explicit invitation for me and you to imagine exactly that place and to put Jesus in front of it. With that situation in the background, the thing that is like enemy territory in your life. Maybe it's your job and it's going great. I mean, everybody is giving you so many accolades. The whole world's falling apart, but not your job. You keep climbing the ladder up and up and up. So much favor, so much fruit, so much of all the good stuff. But on the inside, you're hollowing out. Your faith is faltering. Your family falls apart. I think there's an invitation to imagine exactly those places and put Jesus in front of them and let him ask the question, who do people say that I am? Because when Jesus asked the disciples, they then get to tell him, well, let me tell you how the world sees you, Jesus. Here's how the world sees you. They think you're, you're like a big deal. So that's the good news. Everybody agrees. You're like one of the prophets, for sure. Probably not the Messiah, but you're at least the guy that gets ready for the Messiah. Everybody feels pretty sure you're a big deal. You're just not who you say you are. And when I hear that, it's like that's not that dissimilar from exactly how the world understands who Jesus is now. Who do people say that I am? If you were to ask me that question, with all my stuff in the background, I would say, well, people think that you were a very nice man and that you had really wonderful things to say. You are a wise teacher, but you're for sure dead. They all think you're dead. And because you're dead, you don't really have anything to offer me or anyone else. And isn't that true? It's like, you know, you know, Jesus, in the, it's helpful in the way that poems are helpful. When you read them, you know, you feel inspired to like go and do good. You know, prayer is helpful, like meditation is helpful. You do it and it clears your mind and then you're more focused and centered and you can be you. So that's who the world says you are. And then unfazed, as if he knew, already. Jesus then looks at his closest friends, at Peter, at James, at John, and at every single one of us who would call ourselves his followers and friends. He looks at me and says, but who do you say that I am? And you are meant to feel the weight of the contrast, the significance of the question. 
You're meant to feel the weight of Caesarea Philippi looming over you, the threat of its shadow, what it is, what it holds for you, what it means for you, and then what the world would have to say about this God that you seem to believe or say you believe has got anything to say about any of that. The world does not believe that's true. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, sweet Peter, who gets it wrong as much as he gets it right, but this is one of his moments. Peter, in a moment of faith, looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the one. You're not the guy before the guy, you're the guy. You are the promised one, the Christ. You are the only one who can do anything about any of this. That's what Messiah means to a Jew, Mashiach. You're God's promise. You're our deliverer. You're the only one who can do anything about any of this. That's who Jesus was in a moment like that to Peter. It's faith, y'all. That's faith, inexplicable, impossible, doesn't make any sense, hope against hope kind of faith. And if you're paying attention, it's the kind of moment that for the, the gospel person, for the hoping person that makes you want to stand up and clap because Peter's faith in that moment is the same thing. Whatever happened to him is what happened to Abraham centuries before. In Genesis, God calls Abraham, takes him on a field trip, an old man, brittle bones, crusty. Old Abraham takes him on a field trip, has him look up, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, how many stars are there? And Abraham says, I don't know, there are too many, you can't count them. And God says, yes, so shall your descendants be, Abraham. Abraham had to feel himself old, feel his brittle bones, know that he had not suddenly become a different man. His circumstances had not suddenly changed. It's not like he was 30 years younger, and yet all we're told, the text says, and Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And your faith was born. Whatever happened there under the stars with Abraham is what happens to Peter in Caesarea Philippi. He's looking out at the city. He's looking at the temple to Caesar. And yet somehow, inexplicably, Jesus gets bigger and bigger, kinder and kinder, more and more good, more and more believable. And Caesarea becomes small. And Peter can say, you are the Messiah. And it's exactly the right answer. Because Jesus, in Matthew's version of the story, says to Peter something similar to what he said to the Syrophoenician woman that we talked about last week. You remember, in response to her declaration of faith, Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. He does not call Peter a woman. But he looks at Peter instead and he says, blessed are you, Simon, not yet Peter, Simon, son of John. Up to this moment, this guy was Simon. And then Jesus goes on to say, your name shall be Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So here's what he's saying. The faith that Peter had, it's not just Peter. 
Jesus is not just talking to Peter, he was talking to every single follower of his that he knew would have to at some point stand beside the cave of hell, the opening of the earth, enemy territory, and look at Jesus and choose to believe that he is who he says he is, which would be all of us. At some point we would get to a place similar and that we would need to have what Peter has, faith. And it's on that faith that Jesus will build his church. And the death, the gates of Hades, hell itself, won't prevail against it. There's a question, I think, in there for us, y'all, and a promise. Can we believe that that same faith that Peter had, that God gave to him, graced to him, gifted him, is available to you and to me? That that is the faith that builds the church in me, Ashley, and in all of us. So I think there are like, there's a question. When you imagine your place, your situation, and you imagine Jesus asking you, who do you say that I am? Can you believe that the same faith that made Jesus bigger than Peter's Caesarea Philippi is available to you? that you can declare the goodness of Jesus. You can look at him and say, you are the Christ, you are the promised one. There's no story that you can't redeem. And that that could be true. After this declaration of faith, this really incredible moment, um, Jesus starts talking immediately about the cross and the fact that he's going to die and suffer. And I wanna say this before we close. I wanna talk about this for just a minute. Um, this really kills me for Peter. Peter's just had this like epic high point, you know? He did it. He got it right. Nobody, by the way, had openly declared Jesus as Lord yet to be the Messiah. And Peter did it in a moment of faith and he gets applauded for it and it's wonderful and it lasts for about five minutes. Because then Jesus starts talking about the cross and how he's going to suffer and how he's going to die. And y'all, Peter couldn't hold both things in his mind at the same time. Jesus had just acknowledged, confirmed that he was who Peter so desperately needed him to be. He'd had a moment of confirmation. Have you ever had one of those? You go into a really dark place and you get a moment, some reassurance from God and it feels so good. Like, okay, he is who he says he is. And then Jesus starts talking about the cross, about how he's going to suffer and die. And Peter cannot reconcile the two things. And so he gives, um, you know, Jesus like the mom tug. He just, you know, gently takes him aside, Mark tells us pulls him over to the side and begins to rebuke him. Bold, bold move. To pull Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him. You know immediately just from reading the story, this can't go well. And it it doesn't. Um, Jesus looks at this same Peter, now this rock upon whom I'm going to build my church, and he looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are looking at things with the eyes of the world, not with the eyes of faith. Not from above, from below. God, isn't that how it goes? I love this so much because Peter is all of us. It's like I start at one minute, I'm a saint, you know? Yes, Lord. And about five minutes later, I'm Satan. There's like this much space between, you know? And that is just the way that it goes for so many of us to turn around so quick. You're looking at things from the eyes of the world, not the eyes of faith, Peter. If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. There's no other way. The only way we go forward, the only way all this gets dealt with, the only way for redemption is if we take up the cross. 
Here's what I want to say about that quickly. I think the same is true for me and you. The only way we see the things redeemed, the only way Caesarea Philippi becomes a place of glory is if we take up the cross. And for us, I think immediately we begin to think that that means, okay, well, then that means I have to choose suffering for suffering's sake. That means certainly that God is going to ask me to do the thing that I fear the most and want the least. That's what it means. I know it. And that's how we see it. And that anemic version of what Jesus is talking about, that vision of the cross, I think for many of us is what's standing between us and where God wants to take us, what he's actually trying to do. Because here's what the cross meant to Jesus. The cross functioned in his world like a massive bully. It was the strong fist of Rome. It served to keep God's people in a place of oppression and fear and submission. It was a fear monger. If you violate this kingdom, if you step out or push against it, if your faith moves out of line, this is the fate that awaits you. And they used it as a tool to provoke and stoke fear, to keep people in their place. And it's that fear, that bully, that Jesus quite literally takes up on his own back and marches it to exactly where God wants it to be, crawls up on it and redeems it and turns it into glory. Somebody better say amen. That is the cross of your gospel. It is Jesus taking the fear monger, the bully, the pain that threatens to keep you and your faith very neatly small, very benign and neutral. It's that Jesus that picks that thing up and takes it into glory to where God wants it to be. There is an invitation here, y'all, a promise that if you don't lead your fear, it will lead you. If you don't pick up and carry the pain and take it where it needs to go, it will carry you and take you where it wants you to go. So when Jesus says, take up the cross, he's not just looking at you and saying, yep, it's everything you've always feared. That's who I am. It's all your worst nightmares come true. Good news. It's the gospel. It's not who he is. That's not his story for you. He is inviting you, though. Can you look the thing in the face? Can you take hold of it? Can you pick it up? Can you give it direction? Can you take it to God so that maybe, just maybe, God could transform it, redeem it, be glorified through it? As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a story, and I'll say this in closing. I just thought of it while we were worshiping and didn't share it this morning, but I called home, called my mom the other day. And my mom said, I gotta tell you, the strangest thing happened. My mom is in a little bitty town, kinda like Nazareth, like a small, small town in Arkansas. She works at a title company. It's like imagine any little old small country town, like downtown square. That's Salem, Arkansas. That's my mom's title company. My mom was on her lunch break. She went and took lunch and she came back and the woman who runs her front desk was crying. And she looked at my mom and she said, the weirdest thing just happened. Mom said, what? She said, there's a guy who just came in here. He was carrying a guitar and it didn't even have a strap on it, it had a rope. 
And he came in and he was really nice. He wasn't weird. He asked if he could play me a song. And I didn't know what to say, so I said yes. And the song that he played for her was, Oh, Come to the Altar, that Elevation Worship song. I don't know if you know it, but it's a really beautiful song. She told my mom, she's like, this woman's not a Christian. It's really beautiful, this song. And he said he was just on a journey because his wife and daughter had just died. And I don't know what it means, but I just can't get this song out of my head. The words, the last words of that song are, um, bear the cross while you wait for the crown, tell the world of the treasure you found. Bear the cross while you wait for the crown, tell the world of the treasure you found. I don't know anything about this guy, and he may be impossibly crazy. (laughs) I'm not, if you run into him, I'm not vouching for his sanity. But let me tell you this. I can't get the words of that song out of my head. And I feel really encouraged and inspired to know that somewhere out there, there's a man brave enough and courageous enough that in the face of death, he would just, you know, like strap on his guitar and decide to see redemption come out of the pain that he feels. That even the worst things imaginable, that life could come from those things, that they could be good. That's the hope that you have. It's the faith that you're promised. It's this gospel that we believe in. Amen. Let's stand together if we're able.